Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I just walked up to my dad and my mom and I said, look, I don't want to do this. I want to be an actor. And my dad said something really interesting to me. He said, right, well, you can't be a good actor. And I was like, what do you mean? He says, you can't be a good actor. The good actors don't work. It's the great actors that work. So be a great actor. That is Australian actor Luke Ford, and this is episode 208 of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you for being here. Osher Ginsberg, isn't he the guy that used to be Andrew G? Yes, yes, I am. Isn't he the guy that used to be blonde? Before that, he had long hair. And before that, we don't know where he came from. Yes, yes, that's me. Osher Ginsberg, isn't he the guy that does the thing with the thing with the roses on the telly? Yes, yes, yes. Hi, welcome. Here I am. This is my podcast. This is the thing that me and, and some other people make every single week. And we have done for four years. Four years now. This is our fifth year of doing this. And this is what we do every week. We have a conversation with people and it's good. <laughs> uh, Luke Ford's on my show today. You can find Luke on Instagram. He's at Luke Ford underscore underscore. So Luke, then Ford, like the car or the thing that holds back a body of water or where you cross a river, underscore underscore. That's where he is on Instagram. I, I guess another Luke Ford who is either quicker on the trigger or slightly more famous or well, I don't know what got Luke Ford no underscores but Luke's, Luke Ford's got two underscores leave space for emojis I guess you can find him on Instagram uh, I'll tell you more about him in just a moment a massive thank you to everybody that got in touch about the Baz Dubois episode that was last week's episode it's got to be one of the best ones I've ever done and all of that is due to Baz all of that is due to Barry Dubois being brave honest open and ready 
to share in the way that he did. And I cannot thank Baz enough. He actually called me, which is really sweet, and he called me to, to, to mention that people have been letting him know that they enjoyed the show. It's a, it's a cracker if you haven't heard it yet. Um, Baz deserves all of our support, all of our love, as does everyone that's going through something similar uh, to what Barry's going through right now. He's an extraordinary man, and it's worth a re-listen. Uh, that's what I'll tell you. It's worth a re-listen. A massive thank you. Oh, my God, thank you. Australia, you voted yes. 61.6% of people wrote yes. It's okay. We're all right if people who have the same genitals can get married. God damn, thank fuck for that. <laughs> Finally, we can start to put it to bed. Finally, we can start putting things in place to move towards a more fair and equal Australia for everyone. But I guess, you know, the thing that really resonated with me is that 4 million people voted no for whatever reason. 4 million people said, nope, nope, I'm not okay with this. It might be as extreme as, you know, those, these particular people. Some of them might be you know, really homophobic and feel very funny in the tummy when, you know, the, the concept of, of people of the same gender uh, being in love and, and doing sexual things together comes into their mind. Or to the point of people who are like, mm, I don't like the way the question's framed. I, I don't like what might happen if I say yes, so I'm going to say no. Even though gay people are wonderful. So there's a whole spectrum of people who voted no. However, there's still 4 million people that voted no. So how do we not then create a division in our society? How do we then try to make those people who did vote no feel more okay about moving forward into this more equal Australia that we're going to you know, collectively create together? Um, 4 million Australians, what, there's 25 million of us, so that's what, six, four, one in six? That's a lot of people that don't feel all right with what happened. So it's up to us to not go, fucking you must pack off. We have to kind of go, okay, so this is where it is now. How can we make you feel better? How can we help everything be okay? How can we make those people who've voted no feel better about the world that we are going to create together in a world where same-sex marriage becomes legal? Because it's no use really giving power to one person if you make another person suddenly feel powerless, even if the power they're relinquishing is one that I disagree with, the power to discriminate over others, suddenly this person's feeling, oh, my God, I can't do that thing that I used to define myself by. So if you had that power and that power made you feel safe, you might feel scared. You know, people who are, you know, fear can come out as anger. It, anger is fear. It's That's all it is. And... When you're feeling scared, feeling angry, you might say or do things out of that fear. So how can we as a country make these people feel better about the future that we have ahead of us? And now for me, and I'm just speaking for myself, it starts with listening to those people and, and, and you know, one-on-one, just kind of reassuring that it's all the frightening things that you were told were going to happen aren't going to happen. And it's not, it's never as bad as you think it is. And it's, it's actually going to be okay. It's actually going to be all right. A, a large part of, of that is also trying to help people, I guess, walk in another person's shoes. Not only the shoes of a gay woman or a gay man, but also 
the shoes of a highly religious person who now feels angry and afraid. Like during this campaign, I swear to you, I spoke on Instagram direct messaging and through Twitter direct messaging. I spoke with people who absolutely 100% believe that <laughs> revelations is coming. The judgment day is upon us. And oh my God, I, I love my gay uncle, but I'm terrified of going to hell because I believe that it's real and I'm so scared. So I have to vote no. Because when the book of Revelations is opened, I don't want it to be a yes in there. You know, that's what this person 100% believes, as, as, as I believe that this laptop is in front of me. You know, it is. <laughs> I'm reality testing it. So this, this person would now possibly feel quite afraid, possibly angry. So to try and understand how that person is feeling right now, and maybe if you do cross paths or come time to speak with them, or engage with them, try to be mindful of that fear. Try not to mock that fear. Try to be kind. And if you were super religious, you'd think that any day now the skies are going to split open, the seas are going to rise, the, the skies are going to fall, and, you know, it's over. It's going to be like the end scene of Ghostbusters. Um, and there'll be a whole lot of smiting and fire and brimstone. But I'm just checking the sky to see if that's happening. Nope. Not actually happening. Not today anyway. So I think I think we're all right. But if you are that person, it would be super scary. But it's not going to happen. All that's happening is that we as a society are moving forward into a brave new future where there's more love than there is fear. And we, I, I, for one, would like to make sure that as many people as possible can come to that, pl that place because that would be a beautiful thing. A big thanks to everybody that sent me a podsie this week, uh, P-O-D-S-I-E. It's, it's a word that uh, is used to describe a picture taken of what you're looking at as you're listening to my words right now, because you're probably listening to this on a phone of some description. So whip that phone out of your pocket or your purse or your wherever it is you've got it. Don't do it if you're driving. And take a photo of what it is you're looking at. You could be looking at a cupboard door. You could be looking at a tree. You could be looking at a cat licking itself in a strange way. Uh, whatever it is you're looking at, send me a picture. And uh, you can either do it on Instagram or uh, Twitter, or you can do it, send osher email at gmail.com. This week, I got pictures from uh, people going for a jog in Brazil, uh, someone helping out with volunteer work in Nepal. I got a great one from country Victoria. Someone on the way back home from the gym on a train in Melbourne. Perfect one. Beautiful, beautiful picture of the jacaranda blossom-filled streets of the sub suburbs of Brisbane. It's just great finding out where you guys are listening. It's beautiful, and I love to share it so that, you know, we as a group of people who are making and listening to this show can kind of get to know each other a little more. So send me a photo of what you're looking at right now. Send us your email at gmail.com while you've got your phone in your hand. One more ask real quick on it would be incredible if you could just tell one more person in your week about this show uh, because the more people that I get listening, the better guests that I can get. What are your download numbers? How many people? How long do the tracks? What's your CPMs? Uh, I think we'll pass this time. You know, I've, I've got to pitch the show to get guests, all right? And the more download numbers get some some publicists want to see download numbers and the bigger numbers get me the bigger guests. So better guests, better shows for you. So just please tell just one person this week. Maybe show them how to listen. You know, either do it on Facebook or Twitter or just, hey, how you doing? 
person who's, you know, making my coffee. Here's the show that I listen to. However you do such things. I hope you're okay this week. Um, I'm uh, settling into a bit of a new routine now, now that uh, the radio is, is not in my life. It, you know, it still feels weird. I haven't quit a job since I quit Channel V. So that was 11 years ago. So it still feels weird to not be doing radio at the moment, but it doesn't feel weird to get eight hours sleep a night. That's pretty good. It's pretty much the best drug I've ever had. I may, I may not have taken some drugs to know what I'm talking about, but yes, <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty fucking good to sleep. Doing a lot of writing at the moment. As you may or may not know, I'm writing a book. Um, trying to uh, write as much as I possibly can. Digging in the dirt, though. Find find some stories from long ago. Stories that kind of help to explain what life has been like with the brain that turned up in my skull. There's some heavy shit in there. But we're only at a first draft, so let's see what makes the cut. But when you line all this stuff up... Well, of course, you know, I fell off the edge of reality and popped into psychosis in 2014. Of course, you know, when you see it all back to back, you go, oh, fuck, of course that happened. And I guess that's what I'm trying to do, is trying to paint the picture that so by the time we get to there, you go, oh, well, of, of course, you know, not suddenly like, because at the time I got like, what the why, fuck? Why am I, what? It was terrifying. But that's, I guess that's what I'm, I'm trying to write so that when you read it, you go, ah, that makes sense. But I'm just doing everything that, you know, Benjamin Law told me. Uh, if you listen to the show with him, he gave me great advice about writing the book. Vomiting is, no, writing is vomiting and cleaning it up. That's what he said, vomiting. Writing is vomiting and cleaning it up. So I'm just powering through the vom- vomiting at the moment, powering through the writing at the moment. Uh, and occasionally taking a little walk outside when the memories come down a bit too heavily and just go, oh, that's right, blue sky, blue sky. It's not 1986 anymore. There's blue sky here today in 2017. Things are okay. But, you know, sleeping, eating, exercising, trying to surround myself with wonderful people, trying to do some work that has some purpose. That's about my recipe for maintenance. That's about what I just try to get through every day. Oh, I'm meditating every day as well. So I meditate every day. And I take my meds. <laughs> All of these things put together make a happy, mostly functional Osher. So let me tell you about my guest today. Luke Ford is an Australian actor best known for his roles in Animal Kingdom, The Black Balloon, Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, and most recently, What If It Works?, you can find him on Instagram at Luke Ford with two underscores. That's the shift key and the one next to the zero, which is the minus sign. Uh, Luke and I met at the premiere of What If It Works, which is his latest film. It's, it's an exploration into a love story between two young people uh, with very different brains. Luke plays a man with quite severe OCD based on a real person, the uh, writer-director's brother. Luke plays a man with severe OCD and he falls for a woman with dissociative identity disorder. Now, both mental illnesses are shown on screen unlike normally. They're both shown on screen with great respect and represented in a way that even someone who's never known what either look like or has only seen, like, horror movies of someone with dissociative identity disorder or, you know, comedies with someone with OCD, they're shown with, with, with great respect and, and someone who has never even had an idea of what either disease might look like 
might be able to appreciate how difficult life can be for those people living with it and indeed those people who care about those people living with it. Luke's a strapping young lad. Um, tall, broad, handsome, has a grin that will light up your kitchen, well, if he's ever in your kitchen, as he was in mine. And he, um, he's got some pretty raucous stories about his life as an actor. It's pretty good. He's a great human being. He's someone who's had a powerful arc across his career already, which he'll describe as we talk. I don't want to spoil it. Luke did show up with a mate, uh, which was really handy, uh, Nick. Uh, it was really handy because uh, Frankie, my dog, went absolutely nuts for Luke and uh, it was really good that Nick was there to distract Frankie and play some fetch. But in the middle of a particularly heavy moment, you'll hear Luke get distracted when Frank uh, has had enough playing and decides, no, nope, it's humping time. So he grabs his humping toy and just starts going for it. Look, I'm not alone in having a humpy dog. I know other people have humpy dogs. I've got a humpy dog. What am I going to do? So whatever you're doing right now, uh, whether it be uh, on your bus, on your train, in your plane, in your car, on your bike, in your hammock, up a mountain with your kids, wherever you are, wherever you've chosen to listen to this right now, thank you for being here and uh, enjoy this conversation with Luke Ford. How you doing, Luke? Yeah, I'm good, my man. Yeah, good. Thanks for coming around. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. It's my first podcast. What do you mean your first podcast? I've never done a podcast. I listen to them all the time, but, uh, you know, I've never done one. What do you listen to? I like Joe Rogan's. I always find Joe's just kind of out there and different and unique. I've listened to ones about whether it be about, you know, um, from fighting to poker to drugs and, and also politics, and he gets all kinds of intriguing people, so... I don't live my life in the same way that Joe does, but I find mm. the way that, you know, he's a fairly libertarian, somewhat right-leaning kind mm. of guy, I, I'm, I find it fascinating to mm. have access to that viewpoint on life through him. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not going to go out bow hunting my own meat no. Uh, no. in a hurry. <laughs> um, but, you know, I love that he does it. Yeah. I yeah. love that it's like, I eat what I kill. Yeah. Fucking good on you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, it's so true. And I, I love how it just, you know, it breaks some of the social boundaries, you yeah. know, because you always think, oh, don't do this in life, don't do that in life. And then Joe kind of just opens your mind to say, hey, maybe you can do it, you mm. know, and, and it's actually not that bad for you, you know? Yeah. I remember this one time, me and fucking whatever, we were off our face on mushrooms somewhere and fucking da 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 da. And then he whips out the Dostoevsky and then fucking, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's interesting. He's an interesting cat. And, yeah. and like I said, he's given me access to, uh, you know, particularly so when he gets some more uh, further to the right-leaning um, commentators on. Mm. I, I'd rather not listen to them on a, like an already right-leaning podcast. If I listen to them on Joe's podcast, well, I can kind of access what they have to say a bit True. more. He loosens but, them up more. Yeah, yeah, but also I don't have my biases flying up mm. and, and, and polluting the messages that they have to say, I'm, mm. you know. It's interesting. I wonder how he's going going to go now. He's doing this whole month off weed. Oh, is he? Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, that he's part. doing a whole month off weed. Oh wow! And not drinking, and he's Probably like, a good thing for him. But he's know. like, I've never been funnier. I've- <laughs> You know, it's probably because he wasn't stoned and well, getting his lines or something. Guy, yeah. For a guy that's done stand-up for thirty years yeah. to say, and who's advocated recreational marijuana his whole yeah. career, to then go, oh, I've never been funnier. Yeah, probably a good sign that maybe it's not as good as he thinks it well, is. Well, be interesting. Well, look, so if this is your first podcast, it's fairly, it's fairly gentle. You've brought back up, so yeah, I brought back up. Nick's here. Yeah. Nick's here playing, playing fetch with Frank, the dog. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, they're having a having a ball, uh, which is good because normally I'm, I sit here having you know, like deep conversations, playing fetch with a dog, uh, distracting my so, distracting my guests. So, is Sydney home for you? Yeah, Sydney's been home for me for pretty much all my life. Actually, yeah. I was born in Canada, but uh, my dad was doing a degree there in the middle of nowhere in Thunder Bay, Ontario. What? Which is quite funny because when I filmed the Mummy uh, movie, uh, when I went to Canada and. People, I said to people, I was Canadian, and, and that was a whole incident myself because, unfortunately, Universal Studios paid for me to get a working visa there, and I queued up four hours at the airport to get it stamped, and then literally, literally the guy, when, when I got to the counter, he just said, looked at my passport, he says, you're Canadian, and then tore the papers and the working visa up and said, you can work here, man. And I was like, oh, all right. So, but any time I actually went and said to people, oh, I was from Canada, and they said, oh, where were you born? I said, oh, Thunder Bay, Ontario. They start laughing. They just break out in laughter. It's almost like it was like, I don't know, maybe the Mount Druid of Sydney. I'm not sure. But they just laugh and they go, oh, man, the people out there are crazy. crazy. Really? Yeah, every, every time. Any time people were like, <laughs> laughing at me go <laughs> so your father and mother are what your father's a canadian no my father's english uh he was a professional football coach like soccer coach and he was doing sports psychology degree and uh there was a teacher lecturer who he wanted to study with of some sort so he went over there they went over there when mum was pregnant and uh i was born there and kind of yeah that was it my mum's australian too how old were you when you came here Ah, uh, so I think I was about two. I think I ended up in Queensland first uh, and then came back because that's where my mum's family's from mm. and then came to Sydney when I was two or three or something like that. Lived in England for a year, but I was in Canada for about a year. Right. I, so I, I, all I remember is eating a dark fader ice block in the snow and I think I'm taking a shit. What I remember, that's my only memory. At the same time? At the same time. Yeah, mum going, watch out, you'll get frostbite or something, <laughs> some, something like that. <laughs> Thunder Bay sounds like a pretty cool... <laughs> It's a pretty cool place to get born. Yeah, well, it's because in Canada, ninety they say ninety percent of the population live on the border of the United <laughs> States and uh, and Canada, and there's only like ten percent of that population live further up because it's just so damn cold. Yeah, and yeah, we were up there, um, up in that ten percent area. So it was it was an intriguing place to be born. So what sports psychology universities up there? I, I'm not sure. Actually, it's all kind of a, a dead area now. I don't even know if the university's there anymore. I've never had a birth certificate either. So the hospital that I was born in burnt down like in the late 80s. And, I, you know, so it's always a struggle for me if, you know, like on a passport asks for a birth certificate. I have to actually show them my Australian residency certificate when I became an Australian resident, which was like they did it early, like May 82 or something like that. And I was born in 81. So it's kind of, it's a, kind of a real low rundown town now I hear. So... So when you say I was born in Thunder Bay, yeah. it brings cred. Cred, yeah. <laughs> so it brings cred and certain looks and reactions too. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm grateful you're here. We met the other night at mm. the, uh, the premiere, the former premiere of um, What, what it Works. works. Yeah. And um, I, I made a joke, which I often do when I'm around people who are taller than me, where I kind of squat <laughs> down in photographs to make you look like a I giant. I looked very tall. I saw you that do. photo. But you are very tall. How old were you when you were this big? Uh, how old was this height? I think I shot up. Uh, in year, I've been about six foot three since I was about 18, 17, 18. Okay, then. Yeah, six foot two, six foot three, somewhere right. there. Men can grow to 28, I found out. So Wow. But, like, I stopped growing about, yeah, I think 19 was my last growth spell. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I've met, I know some people who are, like, yeah, 11, yeah. and they're, like, humongous. Yeah, I, I did a I did a shoot-up in year eight. 
from year 78, I shot up, I think it was six inches. Caused me quite a lot of pain in my legs. Mm. They, you know, I had a, a, a condition, I can't remember the name of it, for my knees. Osculatus. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, so I had to, and I was playing sport and it was quite tough for me, but mm. uh, the taller you are, the flatter your feet get and uh, and it can get really painful. So. <laughs> well, so was sport like a thing that your dad was really pushing you into or was it something yeah. you wanted to do? Yeah, it was, it was something I always wanted to do. It was, you know, I loved sport. He drove me mad. It kind of actually led me into acting, to be honest. Um, How's that? Well, because, you know, my dad was, you know, a professional coach. And so, you know, and, and, and any sport I tried, he seemed to have some sort of knowledge about it. And my dad always kind of had this, you know, and I love my dad, by the way, but he always had this kind of uh, thing of like, you know, if you, you don't, there's no such thing as not playing well is not fun. You know what I mean? So he was quite temperamental in that way. And it kind of, kind of ruined it for me and I you know so soccer I finished I played soccer from like you know primary school to just before high school quit because it was just getting too much and then uh, I picked and then cricket was the same thing my dad was bowling balls at you know certain pace and I was a very talented little cricketer but that drove me nuts because I broke my nose from him bowling a ball too fast yeah it wasn't his fault there was a burnt it was an artificial pitch and there was a burnt patch from some teenagers going nuts it bounced on there whacked me in the nose and then basketball I thought this is the one sport I know he had never mentioned, but I was always, and I got really good at that. But I was always that guy when you play a game of sport, especially in basketball, because I got pretty serious representative sport. And, you know, and he'd be coaching on the sidelines. And after the game, the coach would be like, whose dad's that? You know, and I'd be like, oh, that's, that's my dad. Yeah, I want to speak to him after. after. And so it kind of got to this point where it was just too emotional for me. And so it kind of was like, what's one thing I know he doesn't know? And acting was kind of it. So what was your first experience there? What with acting? Uh, my first experience actually was in high school in, in year nine. I actually was, a I actually had suffered dyslexia as a kid uh, and was doing like remedial kind of work, remedial English. And, and the, the English teacher said, you'd be good at drama and come year 10, you get to select certain subjects, but I didn't pick it. I picked music at first and then the musician, the te- music teacher said, you're terrible. And I was like, okay. So I picked art, terrible. And then he said, you still got time to come into drama. And I got into drama and it was the first time I ever got an A for anything other than sport, like PE or something like that. So I got hooked on it. And then the best thing that ever happened to me is in year 9 and 10, uh, sorry, in year 9 and 10, coming into year 11 and 12, drama got dropped and uh, I didn't know... I loved it so much, so I went outside and I, you know, looked in the back of the Sydney Morning Herald, and there was little pieces, and there was a school called Sydney Talent Company, and they did classes. And I didn't know they were actually an agency, a kid agency. I did some work there, and next minute, bam! I, I, they they liked me, and I got an audition, and off I went. My first gig was a New South Wales. Uh, corporate video about knife legislation so i went to newtown performing arts and the police are pretending to arrest me because i have a knife in the car and how to pop you know properly go about the procedures and then i landed my first ever tv gig playing a homophobic character who was beating up uh i think his name was vince on breakers remember breakers <laughs> vaguely yeah and i i had one i had a 50 it was a 50 word i had two lines and on the first line it's I remember this because Harrison Ford talked about a similar thing. I could not remember the line. And I, I still remember it now. It's, who you kidding, huh? You know, and now I know it. Who you kidding, huh? And I had all the extra bullies that we were all kind of like a bully group 
going and whispering it. Hey, mate, it's, it's who, you, who you kidding her? Who you kidding her? Who you kidding her? And I'd get up there and I'd fro- freeze every time. I would, and they'd go, cut. And I'd be like, oh, so sorry. <laughs> and all that. So, <laughs> so it took, yeah, so that was kind of the first ever kind of break into it. So what's it do? What's like my uh, someone in my family has dyslexia. It does mm. does run in my family. Can you describe what it's like to go through school having that? It, yeah, it's quite difficult. Um, but also too for me, I guess I wasn't the brightest guy to really know that it was much of an issue. Um, I, my my dyslexia was completely missing words. So if I wrote a sentence going, um, "The man went down the road to grab some milk," I'd be like, "Man down road milk," and then they tell me to read it. And I'd read it exactly how I thought it was in my mind. Man went down the road to get some milk. And they said, no, read it again. I go, yeah, man went down some, the road to get some milk. And they go, read it really slowly. And then I'd start missing the words. So uh, it, it still remains in me a little bit. Um, like when I write, um, I notice, you know, some words, but it's a lot better. Now you, they say you can actually grow out of dyslexia. Yeah. Yeah. You can, it's actually a, 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 you know, a kind of a kid thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it was, it was, it was kind of hard. Like it was hard in the sense, like I got a lot of C's and D's and, yeah. you know, science and, you know, and English was really hard for me, but. Disheartening watching other kids be able to grasp stuff. True. Yeah. It was, it was disheartening and, and it wasn't like I didn't make an effort to, I actually did make an effort like, uh. You know, you spend 13 years of your life there, and so you go. You may as well come out doing really well at it. And uh, at the end, in the, in the HSC, I actually got given a reader, and so someone was actually I was speaking, and they'd write for me, and it really helped my mark. So right. yeah, I was allowed to do that because I, I they had proven that I was dyslexic. That's freaking amazing yeah. yeah and the great thing is a lot of the time they would give me really smart year 11 year 11 students and so they were kind of nice kids so they'd be like you're not saying it right and they go i'll change it for you <laughs> i'll be like great i'm go- I'm studying psychology now <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna get an a i'm gonna get 90 you know so what was it like for your, what was it like for your folks though when they started seeing you get like a's in in drama um, yeah, look, you know, I think that my dad definitely, because my dad's always been a believer of, you know, if you've got a talent, follow it through. So my dad was very much kind of very supportive and actually very excited for it. And he was he was the man that was, you know, picking me up, taking me to acting classes after his game of golf on Saturday. Mum was the complete opposite. She wasn't a massive fan of it at the beginning. She always felt like I should do uni and or get an apprenticeship. She still does that to this day. So if I'm like, you know, I've had a quiet year this year, she'd be like, you got to get an apprenticeship. I've got a friend who's a carpenter. He'll he'll get you an apprenticeship. I go. I think I think I think going on to a three hundred and fifty dollar a week salary is not really going to make me grow too much. Son, you need an apprenticeship. You can start your own business. You'll make lots of money. Okay, it's not what I want to do. And I'm hopeless at building things, Mum. You know, she continues to do it. So I've had to do dabble in some things like waterproofing and window tinning just to keep my mum happy. You know, and also to make sure I pay my rent and things like that. But yeah, my mum has never been a massive fan. She always felt like you need discipline, you need structure. You always were a kid mucking around because the dyslexia makes you kind of, you know, when you're not doing well at school and being attentive, you actually start being a distraction and getting in trouble a lot. And she always thought that structure and discipline was really important for me. And so she kept pressuring me <laughs> to keep doing the pressure. I and mean, she still does to this day. So uh, once high school, once you got out of the HSC, uh, there's you know there's the whole world is is waiting for you there. Mm. What what was the move? So I actually I did actually start at university, but I was also studying at a local school in Redfern called the Actors Pulse, 
which was teaching a really intriguing style of American style of acting called Sanford Meisen technique, which has now been kind of my life. Um, and yeah, so I just got hooked on that and just was, you know, and just doing that. Is Meisen the rep- repetition one? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, repetition. And uh, I ended up just starting to fail university and I told my dad. What was the course at uni? Uh, art psychology. Oh, right. Yeah, so it was art psychology, yeah. So it was an arts degree majoring in psychology. And uh, I, I just walked up to my dad and my mom and they said to me, uh, I said, look, I, I, I don't want to do this. I want to be an actor. Uh, I was 18, maybe turning 19, somewhere there. And they said, and my dad said something really interesting to me, which still remains with me. He said, right, well, you can't be a good actor. And I was like, what do you mean? He says, you can't be a good actor. The good actors don't work. It's the great actors that work. So be a great actor. And it kind of stayed in my mind and brought a certain amount of dedication to my work. And so, yeah, off I went and started doing it and just working my way up on little shows with, you know, from like Water Rats and um, Stingers and and then started. It took me a long time to get my first feature film, Kokoda, and and then after that things started getting a little bit more momentum. So when you for, for folks who don't, you know, understand what it is to, to get into that, that world, it's usually like... Um, we need you to come and do a day mm. here mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. maybe four months will go by. Yeah. And then oh, longer. another day. Yeah, exactly. Here. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure around that. There, there is. But I think, you know, if I was doing it now, the pressure would be on. But when you're young, you don't really notice that because you're naive and you're thinking it's all moving forward in some degree. And yeah, what I tell a lot of people that are starting out now is you're going to get 50 worders, you're going to just get auditions for commercials and really weird corporate videos, and then you're going to get little 50 word roles, then you're going to get little auditions for guest casts, you might land them, then you'll start getting auditions for some series regulars, and then eventually crack into films. And and people don't know, everyone, it's, you know, I call our generation or maybe... Uh, yeah, I call my generation and generations after it the two middle noodle generation. They literally want it now. It's like, what's the easiest, most quickest way to possibly, you know, make something so I can fulfill myself? And I don't think it really works like that for acting. You know, you kind of, it's a hard yak of work. And even those actors that spurt really quickly, they're going to have their adversity later on because it's a long road. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a life choice, not just a career choice as an actor. You've got to go through the hard times as well as the good. And there's been heaps. What do those hard times look like for you? Well, I've had a couple lately. Um, uh, just, you know, dry work and, you know, and looking at other people doing really well and you're not yourself and it kind of plays with your ego a little bit and you try to, you know, you try to get back to the basics of like, you know, I love doing this. This is about, you know, just enjoying and entertaining and educating people. It's not about who's more successful than the other because, like, there's always going to be, whether it's a, someone's always going to be a better at some sport than you or better looking than you or a better actor than you and you just got to just, you know, I'm on my own journey. Acting is like playing golf, you know what I mean? You're not playing against the other person that's hitting the golf ball. You're playing the course. So I kind of get that mentality of, like, let's just play the course here, you know? That one from the old man? No, that was actually that was actually me, <laughs> and, and my old man forcing me to play, you know, t- playing golf as well. Because I was actually, I've always been good at hitting balls. So whether it was a cricket bat or a golf ball, I just naturally had this talent of showing great technique with doing it and um, playing on golf courses. I realised that you can't really play against the other person. It's not about hitting bigger shot than the other guy. It's about really how do I beat the course here? How do I get if it's a par four? How do I get under a par four? Yeah, plain and simple. I, whatever, 
whatever metaphor works mm. for you, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I've spoken about this on the show before. My, I lived in Los Angeles for a long time. My ex was an actor and just, just seeing how little of the decision-making process about who gets work or not is based upon your skill as an actor. Yeah. Mm. It's it was it must be difficult to reframe the constant no yeah. that you're getting. Oh, it's 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 tough, and also too now it's like the whole social media element of it as well has become this huge entity on whether you get work or not. Like I might be the best actor for that role, and there might be a guy who might be ninety percent as good as me, but he's got a hundred thousand followers on Instagram, so he's going to get the job. You know what I mean? Because it's just like there's more promotion, advertisement, and it's a business. It's not an art form to a producer. But to an actor, it should be an art form, you know. But uh, So it is actually getting tough in that sense to hear the no's because sometimes those no's and when you see the person cast in the role, you're like, I, I personally think I was better than that person doing the role. Right. Yeah. And the, the other thing is, you know, so the, the person's writing, I don't know, let's say the, the, the character's name is Keith, mm. all right, and, and the writer... Slash, say if it's a writer director, mm. the writer's writing, you know, and, and Keith is is five foot three. Keith is a nuggety little dude. Keith is, you know, <laughs> you know, kind of cranky, and he's got a scowl on his face. And then you walk into the door, six foot three, a beaming smile. Yeah. You might be, you know, the best Meisner dude in the world. You might be the best actor he's ever walked in the room. He's like, you're not Keith. You're not getting that role. But you know what? That it works against you a lot. But then also too, one of the biggest opportunities in my life, which was Black Balloon, a film where I won the AACTA award and it won Berlin and things like that, they needed a guy over six foot. So that actually that actually helped me when everybody <laughs> wanted to have a crack at that role because it was like a Gilbert Grape kind of great character. They were the cast agent and the director were like no one under six foot because my, my brother is six foot four and I want someone tall. So that it does you know, sometimes when it works and sometimes yeah. when it doesn't work. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it's like my blonde hair just hammers me for work or my fair, my fair skin or, you know, the water way to carry on my face. So, you know, but it's got, it's got nothing, nothing to do with, with your acting. No, nah. but there's, it's, just, it's, there's so much that you bring, that, the skill that you bring as an yeah. actor, but then ultimately you're still walking around in this, this body that, you can't do anything about it. Yeah, really. no, it's true. But you go, you know, you kind of got to look at the mentality of it like more of a long road. Like you hear great stories like, you know, like for example, De Niro in Godfather. He went in to test for Michael Colleone or whatever it was, the Pacino role. And he wasn't right for that role, but he did such a good test. It leaded him for Godfather Part 2 playing Brando as a youngster. So you kind of look at it more as building bridges not necessarily that might be the bridge or contract you're going to get for that bridge, but you might get one down the track. So I've got no problem when some, and it is hard because sometimes you look at these roles and the characters and a lot of time now it comes in. Generally the, the annoying thing is every breakdown of a character is like good looking, charming, muscular, you know what I mean? You're like, well, I, I, I'm okay looking. I'm, I am charming. But I ain't muscular, you know, so it's hard to walk in there and go, well, you know, it's hard to get motivated when you know you're not going to get that role. So it's sometimes good to have that mentality going, right, it might not be this one, but I could get something off these guys later. Right. Know? So is, I'll put my effort in. Do you find that there's there's pressure to, to get some meat on your bones? Do you find there's pressure to get yeah, muscular? Yeah, yeah. I look, in all honesty, I've, I've had agents well, and all that be like, you know, you should be, you know, bulking up and going to the gym and making you know looking your best and 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 they're right to a certain extent i don't know about bulking up but they're right to a certain extent to always be looking as good as you can to get the job 
But uh, it is hard. I find it very hard personally because it's never been my inclination. I, I like character and I like to just be like, where can I live in this and where can I venture into this? Mm. And I've done, you know, great character films and then I've also done the Hollywood movie where literally they're like, I don't care if you're a good actor, man. I just want you to smile. I want to show those pearly teeth I paid for. <laughs> and like, okay. Does that have a bait them quote? Uh, that, that, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of like that, yeah. And, and so you kind of, and you're really like disheartened by the whole process. And then funnily enough, people don't, uh, you know, when the reviews come out and they go, oh, it was kind of like average or just seemed like the typical character and stuff like you're like, um, but that's not what I wanted to be. <laughs> they were just telling me I had to do this, yeah. you know. And, you know, I remember Jake Gyllenhaal and, you know, he's, you know, he was, you know, doing all these independent character work and he's back there. But then he did Prince of Persia and he bulked up and he ripped up and he, you know, looked good. And he, he was trying to bring still a great kind of amount of acting to it. And these people are like, no, we don't want that. We just want you to be charming and smile and look good. And I think that drove him mad. And that's kind of what brought him back into the more yeah. independent scene and, you know, probably in a way take, you know, back end from that to make the money that you would make in a Hollywood movie. You to know? Use, to, let's let's go back to your mum's carpenter yeah. analogy, all right? <laughs> it's like watching Selling Houses Australia and having Andrew Winter walk in and go, this bathroom is an absolute disgrace. And the carpenter stands there and goes, I, I just did what they, to- what they asked me to do. They paid me to turn up. I uh, had this idea. They said, no, 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 Put the cupboard there. You know, as an actor, you're, you're a workman. You're there. Yeah. You, uh, you know, between the, the writer and the producer and the director, you're like, well, okay, I'll do what yeah. you're paying me to do here. That's right. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. it. But the hard thing is, is when everybody judges it, yeah. you can't go around the whole world and start telling every individual, oh, you don't understand, man. That wasn't me. I would have done so much better. It was the director telling me to do that, you know? <laughs> Well, I guess that's where the, uh, you know, the actor, writer, director comes in. That's where you've got to start making your own shit, isn't it? Which is something I like, I'm, you know, starting to get a lot curious about I'm, and um, wanting to do. I'm, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of in the process of writing a comedy series about all my experiences as an actor because I've had some crazy stories and things that happened to me from making certain films like The Mummy and things like that. So... You know, I'm kind of venturing into, you know, trying to do my own thing because it, it, the success is in that. Look at Joel Edgerton with Blue Tongue Films and, you know, the, I think you get a longevity in it and also starting to get a lot more curious about directing because, yeah, I, I just I find it very hard just you're the one that's going to green light whether I do well or not, you know. I'd rather be the one that green lights myself, you know. I, uh, having the only relation that I can, you know, have to that is like in – in between TV gigs, I would just busy my days mm. with creating formats and putting pictures together and stuff like that. Even though I wasn't working, it stopped me from disappearing down the hole of fuck, I'm not working. Yeah, good move. Yeah, you know? good move. Yeah, see, I, I do a lot of teaching and, you know, I, and uh, keeping my craft going, but I haven't actually ever really kept my business going as strong. Probably why, you know, sometimes I work well and sometimes I'm quiet, you know, so. You know, but I am now. I'm, I'm now more trying to take put the ball into my court a little bit yeah. more and have a bit more control in the game. Yeah, it gives know. you more agency as to and, and like I said, you know, on the on the in the weeks, months, whatever between gigs, you're like, well, I've got momentum going here. Exactly. Right. And in my experience, I've always found that there's something if you're just sitting around, you know, drinking coffee and you mm. know reading a book all day versus, oh, what's he doing? Oh, he's just busy writing. Yeah. It's just writing. You know, it it's gives good. you, you know, p- people see that something's going on. Yeah. That's actually a good move, actually. It's and a really good move. It keeps some energy around you so that when you walk in the room, 
They're like, oh, all right, there's something, you know, yeah. he's had to fit me in his day. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah that, that, and you know what? I am starting to play that a little bit more because you're right, when it, it reaches desperation if you're not doing anything, oh, you know, and they'll start going, oh, well, we've kind of, it's like a relationship. Who's got the hand, you yeah. know, and, and if they've got the hand, they're more willing to sit and wait or, you mm. know, in, check out on other people. Which is, you know, it's kind of what my agents always said. It's better to have collateral, you know, like something like, oh, well, look, you got to kind of offer him because he's writing this and he's kind of caught in this or he's wanting to do this. Exactly. So make an offer now yeah. and we'll get it. But when, when there's nothing going on like that and they say make an offer, they'll be like, oh, no, we kind of just want him to come in and audition because, you know, they don't know something's kind of brewing and there's yeah. no urgency for him to kind of go, right, here's the offer. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I feel you there. It's a hard Having part. So let me ask you. I like I've I've had the the fortune of basically doing television from you know Channel Thirty One all <laughs> the way up to Primetime Network in Australia, mm. and I've done Primetime Network in the States. And I can ah. t- I can tell you the difference between the two of those. What's the difference like between like the old joke is you can make an Australian film for the catering budget of an American film. <laughs> what's the uh, What's the experience like on one of those? absolutely fucking massive franchise films like the mummy <laughs> it's it's pretty incredible there is a big difference um you know uh, there, there is an element of a lot a bigger element of pressure uh than an australian film that that in itself uh, i was the lead in the mummy movie and they were wanting me to take over the franchise at the time so uh you know from the first time i auditioned uh and then they're telling me okay we got you we want you but we've got to get your teeth fixed you know, and going onto a film set where, you know, you were put in, like, the, I remember the first time I stayed because we were shooting in Montreal, Canada, in St. Sulpice Hotel, and they put you in this massive penthouse, which I flooded on the first day, my, 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 I might add. But, and you, you know, and you're there going, holy crap, you know, this is something I've never experienced before. And every day was kind of like a surprise. Walking onto the sets were just incredible. Like, they, they had, like, full-on booby trap scenes. They had... Uh, 500 terracotta warriors. There was a scene with a Shangri-La where they had a, a waterfall going with a Buddha that was at least nearly at least nearly half the size of a football field. And and you, you so there's something quite significant about that. But also there's a difference in the way they approach their actors. There is the saying you only know when you're doing well is when they don't say a thing. They'll in Hollywood they'll only tell you when you're doing something bad. They'll never tell you you're doing a good job. I never got one compliment. While making that movie, I did get one, but that's that's an incredible, intriguing story in itself, which I'm happy to tell you. But yeah, they, um, you know, they only tell you when you you know you're doing something bad. So a lot of the time, I was wanting to do a good job, and I was hoping for that kind of encouragement. I'm on the right track, and then they pull up and go, "Look, you got to work on your accent more." Or "Look, you got to do this," and and you and it just it it was a different kind of dealing with your confidence that I had never actually had felt before. It was, it was quite cutting. It was almost like that whole film, you felt like you're getting stabbed a little bit, you know, from pain of like, because you wanted to do a good job, but everyone seems to be not happy with you. And I, I think, you know, if I had that, which I'm hoping to have that chance again at the, end of the beginning of next year, um, where I'll be prepared for that a little bit more and, and hopefully, you know, just kind of be able to have that self-confidence and not be relying on someone else to build that confidence for you, which I don't think is a real confidence anyway. What's it, what's it like when you're standing there on set and there's all these, you know, highly paid, incredibly efficient, I fucking swung a boom on Jaws, sound guys around, people have been there for 40 years, and then 
you know, they all know each other and you're the guy you're standing there on a set that's cost more than the GDP of a small island nation. Yeah, and so true. you're like, I better not fuck this up. <laughs> it's tough. I mean, it, it, it actually is quite – you get quite um, lonely and almost like you feel like an amateur as well um, because everybody knows everybody or they just know how it all runs and you're there still kind of learning and – you know, I, I'd been doing it by the time when I did Mummy, I was 26 or 27, I think it was 26, and I'd been doing it for eight years or nine years at the time, uh, but I felt like a 17-year-old kid starting out again. I actually like felt like I walked on breakers again, but now with a huger budget and a lot more pressure. And yeah, I, I didn't handle it too well, to be honest. I think that's why it took me a while to get back in there a bit, because I, I, it really did affect like my emotional state. I hadn't yeah. dealt with loneliness before. I hadn't dealt with my own time for that long period of time because I was, you know, sometimes you'd be in a hotel or, in, or on a set or, or something like that all by yourself for four or five months. And there is actually, you don't know that it actually takes a mental toll out of you. And, and I was dealing with all this stuff. At the same time, I was actually suffering post-traumatic stress. So it was a massive combination of feeling quite scattered and lost. And, you know, I kind of wish that I'd got that opportunity now because I would have nailed it, you know, but... Yeah. What would you have done differently? I probably would have. Uh, I probably would have been prepared. I would have prepared myself to be able to be a bit stronger, and I would have been a little bit more uh, adamant in my decisions and kind of be a little bit. It's not. You could kind of say creatively argumentative with them. You know, like where I would be like just startled by the direction and startled by the producer's comments and almost be frazzled by it and just be wanting to do what they're telling me to do rather than going, you know what, hang on a second, let me do this, or let me try this, or just, you know, taking, like uh, Chris Hayward, the old school actor, like, said, once said, take the information, pretend, say, yeah, I'll do it, and then just don't do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you know what? It's so true when you do that. They think you do it anyway. They'll come up and go, that's exactly what I wanted. I'm like, <laughs> right, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's, it's just a bizarre little world like that, you know? There is... Uh on the, I can't remember. So there's a there's an audio program called Pro Tools, which I'm sure you're aware of. Which one? Pro Tools. It's no, like, I don't know. Well, that. Pro Tools is like the 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 base standard. It's like the Adobe Premiere of the audio world. It's oh, like yeah. the standard, the Microsoft Word of, of writing. It's the audio program that everybody uses. And there's an interface, a USB interface that has all the keystrokes kind of mapped out onto it. Mm-hmm. So rather than using the keyboard, you can use this thing. And um, the radio station I used to work at, there's this this module that's on the right that's got all these knobs and buttons on it, and it's got this big button on it, and it's called the PPB. Uh-huh. All right, yeah. and when you touch that button, a big red light goes off, and it stays on until you touch it again. PPB stands for producer pacification button. <laughs> All right, so wow. you're listening to an audio mix again and again and again. This is like absolutely hardwired into this rig. Yeah. You go, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? Hang on a second. Hit rewind. Push this button. The light goes on. Let me just play it back for you. Hit play. Nothing changes. They go, ah, that's it. <laughs> Perfect. So Mix it. Print it. It's just a load of shit, really, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> it's, there's a lot of that. So it's how so did fun. you, you know, so obviously it sounds it sounds like this this gig, obviously the biggest gig that any actor could get. Mm. It's just gigantic studio, humongous franchise filming. And you, you, you're talking as if you're like, oh, I could have, did, did you feel like you might have, you might have messed it up a bit? Well, it just, I just, from the get-go, Got off on the wrong foot with everything. I yeah. got, so I landed in. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In Montreal, and then the first day I was I was um, went in to meet Raven, and he was a really interesting character because I I literally walked in there and he's like, okay, Luke, he literally hanged up on the phone going fuck me, man, and I'm like, oh, what's up? And he's like, ah, my wife, she wants to have a baby. My boys can't swim, and I got to pay sixty four thousand dollars to have this fucking IVF, and there's only a fourteen percent chance. And he goes, and Luke, you need to fuck a lot of chicks as well, man. Like that. And I'm like, okay, all right, all good. And then I went out that night and I had a few drinks. And I'm not a massive drinker. I actually legitimately don't drink a lot. But I guess I was in a new country. You know, you got to go out there. I had a few drinks, came home. And see, whenever I do feel a little sick, whether I feel nauseous or feel thing, I always love a shower. Showers get me. Next minute, I passed out in my shower, flooded the whole hotel. I mean, I flooded my whole penthouse. I flooded the re- <laughs> flooded the restaurant. I flooded the downstairs level, and I flooded down the other, other people's rooms. And next minute, I'm freaking out because I'm like, oh, my God, this cost me a fortune. And luckily, I had in my contract accidentals. So next minute, already, this company's having to pay like a quarter of a million dollars of damage. <laughs> <laughs> How did you, did you wake up naked? Uh, I, well, I, I woke up. I literally woke up like I woke up. And this is honestly, I woke up dreaming of a golden shower. I woke up as if I was pissing on myself. Uh-huh. And then I'm in the shower. I'm like, holy crap. And then I open it up and it's like cake full of water, just full of water. Then I open up my door and it's completely flooded. And then I'm like, holy crap. So I'm trying to put all the towels. I had like four towels. I was, I was using the bed doona, right? It was under my bed even. And then I open the door. I'm thinking, right, what do I do? And I've had times where I like to put the do not disturb sign on for a couple of days and just be like, leave me alone. And uh, I thought, right, I'm just going to put the do not disturb sign on for a month and dry this thing out. (laughs) So I open the door and it's all flooded down the hallway, all flooded going into people's rooms. And then I locked myself out because I got the towel. I had my towel around me. I was like, damn. And I locked myself out to the lift opening and about 20 of the staff coming around. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I drank and I got fell asleep and I flooded the whole hotel. I go, no, no, sir. You flooded here, the restaurant and downstairs. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, no. And then the second night I I caused another trouble because then they had a little pre-mummy party. And I was like, I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. I'm very capable of that. And then this really hot hostess who was hosting the show was just come up and said, would you like a shot? And she seemed very intrigued and interested in me. So I had a shot, then I had another shot, then another shot. Next minute I'm feeling like a bit dizzy because I was still probably drunk for the day before. 
And then I went home and I forgot that I ate a real big tomato, something tomato, pizza, tomato salad. So I threw up and I thought it was blood. So I called the assistant producer and I'm like, oh man, I've drunk too much and I've thrown up on, on, uh, in the toilet and, it's, and it's, blood, uh, it's blood. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. And I told him about the flooding. He had to tell the producer, Sean Daniels, that I'd flooded that hotel. And he's like, just don't hop in the shower. Anyway, next minute. I'm in the shower. I wake up to him opening the shower. So he got, they let him in because he was like, dude, the kid's going to flood a hotel. I can hear the shower going. And I'm like, oh my God. And there's two women with him and they were very stunning women. And I'm butt naked walking around going, sorry, look at that. And he goes, yeah, I think that's blood. I'm calling an ambulance. I'm like, oh uh, yeah, all right, all right. Because I can't stop throwing up. And so then I get an ambulance. They take me down on the bed and the same crew that saw me flood the hotel the night before, (laughs) they were on again. Look at that, I just pulled the mask on. I think I got a drinking problem. <laughs> Put the mask back on. Woke up in the morning on my couch in my thing. Couldn't remember much of it other than just a little blurry in and out consciousness at the hospital. And these two women are naked in my bed. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? Those two girls stayed in my room. They just decided, oh, he just says, stay here. I've got to take, go to hospital with him. And then they're naked in my bedroom. And I wake up going, what happened? I'm thinking, hey, I got lucky. And they'd start talking French and then they said, do you want to go for breakfast? And I said, no, nah, I'm, I'm good. I'm done. And, and so I had two nights where it was like crazy bad. Then all of a sudden I, I get pulled into Rob Cohen's office. He's like, Luke, man, you're going to fucking get fired. And I'm like, what do you mean? He said, man, I, I can't fucking vouch for you, man. Like Universal going nuts. You flooded a hotel and the next day they got a, an ambulance bill. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh, man, I'm so sorry. And he says, no, man, they're coming over. They're flying over to talk to you, man. This is a $180 million film. We're riding on you. And I'm like, oh, nice. Oh, oh. And they go, oh, man, I can't, I can't protect your job. So you better, you know. So anyway, I was doing, uh, they came early. <laughs> Dogs humping the. But oh, yeah, he does that. Sorry. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> so the producers have come over to read you the right Right, notes. right. And then I, I kind of felt like I, I felt like I'd Russell Crowe it in some way. Like, I'm just going to be really like, don't screw with me kind of thing. <laughs> so I, I had a dialect lesson, like, for the accent and Joy Ellison, lovely lady. And then she goes, do you want me to walk you to the meeting? And I was shaky, you know? And I said, okay, yeah, yeah. And then I just walked in. I said, hang on, wait a second. We'll continue our lesson after this. And they're waiting in like a boardroom. And I opened the door up and I said, listen, I'm not coming in here. And I give you my word. I will not drink for the rest of this shoot. And shut the door like that. And then walked off. Didn't hear from them. Went in to do the cast read. And they actually wrote four more scenes for me. And I didn't drink a drop of drink until the rap party. Even though, I, honestly, anyone that listens to this, I do not have a drinking problem. I hate alcohol. It gives me anxiety and panic. But, you know, I was like, duh. And then I had another incident, which this one, you're going to blow your mind off. This is the mummy stories for you because these are famous um, for me anyway. Uh, because I'm, I was trying to have a baby um, and because there was everyone was – so you had like Jet Li – Brendan Fraser, Maria Bello, uh, Michelle Yeoh. So, and they had the, the love interest for me, um, who was spoke no word of English. So I was kind of the, the slap around guy and I was, you know, uh, getting directed, cut Luke, you're going too fast, go slower. Cut Luke, you're going too slow, go faster. Cut Luke, you're going too fast, go slower. And he was kind of really going at me, going at me. And I think he had this stress of like having to spend, he thought he was going to have to spend half a million or a million dollars on having a baby. Anyway, one uh, was like two months of hell for me or maybe six weeks of hell. And then one day I'm doing the scene 
And every time I was struggling with it, and this time, same thing, I felt like I was struggling with it. And he goes, cut, give me the megaphone. And I'm like, okay. He goes, this kid is going to be a Hollywood star. I love you, kid. And I'm like, finally, a compliment. And then he goes, all right, by the way, I'm having a baby. Like that. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wow. And then, uh, like, oh, that was a compliment. Anyway, it was about four or five weeks of complete bliss or maybe six weeks of complete bliss. It was like greatest period of time of shooting that movie for me. And then one day I got called in at... They told me my call time was 9 o'clock. Then they changed it to midday. Then they changed it to 1 o'clock. But I came in at midday anyway because I wanted to put a test down. I walk in and all of a sudden they're in panic. Oh, we're going to get you in set. We're going to get you on the track. I, think, I said, oh, do you need me to just get into makeup or wardrobe? Because makeup takes an hour. No, you've got to go into makeup. Go into makeup. I said, but maybe we don't need it. And then I go into makeup. So I go into makeup and I'm starting to get this makeup put on. And then they were still coming and checking on me. And they're saying, we've got 40 minutes. It takes a while. Then I went into wardrobe, got into wardrobe. And I'm walking on set. And they're all frantically, look, come on, come on, come on. So I get there. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, walking to set, I see a few of the guys that I'm like been talking to a bit. And I'm like, hey, man. And their face just goes, thing. All of a sudden, this guy just, this chair just comes flying at me. And he's like, who the? And it was Jet Li's first day of filming, by the way. He's like, who the fuck are you to keep Jet Li waiting? You think you're a fucking Hollywood star yet? You ain't shit. And I'm like, and I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm like, man, back the fuck up. I literally said that. I said, you just threw a chair, mate. That's assault, man. I don't give a fuck who you are. And I like got really emotional, walked out. I think I had a cigarette. I was like shaky as anything like that. And I was like, fuck that, man. That's just, that's bullshit. So I started walking. And then I have the producers coming and they're like, uh, you know, saying, dude, where you going? So, man, I'm not going to, that's unsafe to go in there, man. The guy just attacked me. Do you know, I could break this guy in two. I'm like, you know, this is ridiculous. And he's like, Luke, 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 you were late. I said, I wasn't late for set, man. What are you talking about? Your call time was nine o'clock. You're fourth. I said, no, they changed my call time. It wasn't me, man. I do what you tell me to do. I just come in when you tell me, yeah, I'm here. I've never been late in my life. Anyway, they were like, well, you got to get back. Then they found out that, yeah, actually, that was the first AD or whoever it was mistake. So they start saying, get back. And I'm like, dude, this is ridiculous, man. That guy told me, and I'm in a hotel. I'm only for four months, blah, blah, blah. And they said, what can we do to make it better? And I'm like, oh, yeah, fly a friend over. Like that. And they're like, no. I'm like, why not? They said, because you flooded a hotel and you hospitalized yourself. We're not bringing a friend. We'll bring a family member, like a mom or a dad. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, fly my mom. First class? <laughs> and they said, yes. But here's the funny part. I walk back in and... Uh, these things happen. Let's just make you the Hollywood star you are. Anyway, so I walked on the set, started doing a thing, and I, I just went out the back and I, in the back of the set, and I'm just a little emotional getting rid of that tear. And Brenda Fraser comes up and goes, hey, kid, it's not your fault. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you know how you had the IVF? You know how they put all three sperms into an egg? Yeah, he's having triplets. It's a one in a billion chance. <laughs> and I'm like, are you shitting me? And he goes, yeah. And now because she's a, like a model, thin... Yeah, she has to be bedridden for two trimesters because they want to keep. She wants to keep them all, and they don't think she can. Her body will be able to tolerate it. So he's got to get a nurse. He can't have sex with her for six months. He can't do any of this stuff. And I'm like, oh shit. He's like, yeah. So it's not your fault. He's just reacting to that. I was like, oh my god. What? A, you know, triplets. You know, one in three. You know, one in a million billion chance. And I was, you know. So that was kind of like the, the fun part of uh, the, the Montreal part. And then there was the China part was pretty funny too because I'd flown two friends over uh, to Shanghai and, and uh, we went out, they went out for a night and I joined them but I didn't drink and they ended up coming in. They're both Greek 
and very well endowed men. They've always been very famous for their penises. They love their penises, you know. They just have big penises. Like we've all got that. We've all, all got, got that mate who's just they've got they've got such a such a weapon. They just like will whip it out at so, any opportunity. They're exactly like, oh, right. Just Bruce getting it out again. So they were trying to pick up. You know, they were trying to enjoy their holiday and all that. And I was tired. I'd done a tough shoot, so I walked home. And next morning, I wake up to one of them calling me up at six a.m., which I told him, "Don't call me until after eight. And he's like, Houston, we've got a problem. So next minute I walk in and there's my mate. I won't mention his name because he'll freak out. And he's like, what the hell is wrong with me? And he's completely naked and his penis is com- and balls are completely black, pitch black. And I'm like, what the hell? And we're looking, I'm looking all the way under. I'm like, what's, what's wrong with you? What's going on here, man? I said, did you have sex or anything? He goes, no. I go, man, what the hell have you done? And he's like, I don't know, man. I'm really worried about my penis. It was like black, black, like completely black. And so we start freaking out, trying to Google it and couldn't get an answer. And then um, I called my, I got given an assistant in China because, you know, of the English interpretation. I called her up and said, look, you've got to come here. We've got to, we've got to find a hospital or a doctor. We're in the middle. We're like two and a half hours outside of Shanghai, middle of nowhere. And she goes, oh, the only place is a pharmacist. So we take him to a pharmacist. The next minute she starts interpreting, I, and I, you know, and then turns around and says, black or blue? And we're like, black? No, not blue balls. You know, it's black. Anyway, no answer. All right? Next minute, I couldn't help but tell everybody. You know, like, my mate's got a black penis. So then all of a sudden, you've got Brendan Fraser knocking on the door, Maria Bella knocking on the door, every set of crew saying, can, can I can I see the black penis? Can I please see the <laughs> black penis? You've got a photo on your phone, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it started ta- well, I think at that time, that was the start of iPhones. It was yeah. like 208. And they're, like, taking phones, photos of the thing. Next minute, Rob's asking for a select process. And then, and then, and then, to, oh, oh, and they asked him if you, would you like to stay for an extra week because we want to see what happens with the penis. And it did. It went through the colors of rainbows. So it went black to purple to green. It was badly bruised. It burst some sort of capillary, some sort of thing. Went completely black and then completely green. And it was just one, one of those experiences. But I still just remember the, the the way the guy, the pharmacist, reacted. Oh, and it was, it, like, it, he couldn't help himself and just was like, I've got to show him. And so he kind of like zipped it up and put it out just so the guy could see. And at the same time, there was this lady. She would have been about 120. She was walking around right head first into it. Nearly. The assistant? No, no. This is a lady coming to the pharmacy. Yeah. She walked around and saw it and went, oh, no, and walked out. When we walk out of the pharmacy, it was like 50 people looking through the, the window going, what the hell's going on? And I love, you know, the culture because they laugh in a very cheeky way. They're like, oh, you know, and so everyone's laughing. And he's just saying, yeah, I've got a black penis. <laughs> so it sounds it sounds like you know that experience and you know that i guess you know I, I i you know have a similarity or two when i think of my you know of my of my own career how how did things go for you after that it seems like a fairly tumultuous shoot um were it, you thinking like this is the this is the moment <laughs> after this this is the wave crashing and i'm just gonna surf for the rest of my life yeah, yeah. it was it was kind of uh it was a, it was one of those things when you got back to australia you didn't know what the hell had just happened and yeah and you were kind of like whoa do I, do I what's gonna happen now do i want to go through that again and all that but also i had a bit of bad run for the transition into hollywood so during the filming of The Mummy was the big strike era. So oh, the, the writer's strike. Writer's strike. Yeah. And, then, uh, and then because how bad that writer's strike was, because it was all renegotiations of the union contracts. Yeah. And uh, because of how bad that writer's strike, because I remember the last two weeks or three weeks, we had any rewrites, 
weren't allowed to be done. Mm. We had to make it up ourselves. And then, um, and then they, they were concerned that the actors were going to do the same. So a lot of projects got from green light to red light. And it really quietened the game, so it was very hard to catch the next wave anyway. So. And then there was the GFC right after yeah. that. And it was it was a it was a it was a difficult time yeah. to be. It was a bad move by the writers too, because because of, uh, of that big period of time off. A lot of people, a lot of the, sorry, a lot of the studios started deciding, you know what, this show, we don't really need it anymore. <laughs> and so a lot of these writers were holding out for more money and then coming out losing their job. You know, so it was badly handled. And in the end, I know that the Writers Guild, I don't think they actually ended up doing the deal. It was the Directors Guild that actually stepped in and said, we're going to do it. We don't. You guys are taking forever and it's causing a lot of ruckus. So I, I know the Directors Guild got involved in helping the Writers Guild kind of come to an agreement with the studios. What does that, what does that do for your ego? You're like you're walking off set of this fuck-off $180 million film and thinking like, well, that's it. I'm barely going to be able to hold my door closed from the offers rolling in. Mm. And then it's crickets. What does it, that do for you? Yeah, it's... Uh, it's a, it is a big come down. I'll be honest. It was a big come down. Uh, and also it was hard because they do, because when you're like in a studio, when you sign a studio deal, they like kind of put you on a picture deal. Like, they, you know, they try and capitalize on the fact that you're not a name and try and make as much money off you. So you have like three picture deals and, or three picture or six picture deal. I had a six picture deal, three generic, three studio. I know Hensworth, Chris, he had like a nine picture deal. And it gets conflictive because I know at the time they were doing, George Miller was doing Justice League. And now I went into a close to the offer of that role. But then my agent in America said, you can't do it because they want a picture deal for you as well. And it's going to conflict with the Mummy's picture deal, Universal's picture deal. And one, you're going to be legally liable for one of them. So that went away. And then also too, I guess the lesson was after doing, because I did both at the same time, like, Literally had done Black Balloon where I was putting myself in this character and then literally a week later I test for The Mummy and then land The Mummy a couple of months later and was filming that. So I had two different experiences of being a really great, possibly, you know, great, you know, award-winning actor and then, and then being a Hollywood star. And I kind of yearned for more of the, the acting side of things but I also wanted the balance of trying to still do a Hollywood film but be a great acting color Hollywood film. And a lot of time it was like either auditions for horror movies, which I'm not a massive fan of, or um, or like a romantic comedy where you're not the lead. You're just one of the boyfriends of that kind of thing. And for me, I just it didn't really kind of click. So I was trying to really not commit to them. I wasn't really motivated to it. And I think it just fizzled out because of that. Because uh, I really didn't want to just be in a horror film. Horror films, I like, I like them in some way, but... I just find sometimes, like I like conjurings and and all paranormal ones, but those Texas Chainsaw Massacre ones, I don't think that's good for anyone's mental health, <laughs> including my own. I've been in cinema and I've been halfway through it, like I got to go. I, I can't watch the rest of this; it's horrific. Right? Not in the acting, just in the whole violent side of it. And so I just didn't want to be in that kind of thing. I didn't want that in my resume in some way. So, so it sounds like you you made a that both the, the universe and yourself made a bit of a decision to kind of. Pursue more of the 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 more authentic to you, yeah. And like, bear in mind, like it might be authentic to someone else to be in like I'm going to sign ten Marvel pictures and I'm going to live in my life in a in front of a green screen for the next twenty years, yeah. And good for you, it's good for you, yeah. But it doesn't sound like that's the sort of thing you. It didn't sound like for me. I mean, I had two balances of great actors and my people I loved 
Sean Penn was probably my all-time favorite actor, and that guy always was about the work. He's never been about anything other than the work. But then also I had Harrison Ford because my last name was Ford as a kid and being young, I, I was obsessed with Harrison. Indiana Jones has always been my character. So the mummy kind of had a very similar thing to me. And I, I guess now I look back and probably would have preferred to maybe try and still do some of them because in those days I was kind of very concerned that I'd become something, I'd become labelled or, you know, typecast in some degree and I didn't feel like I was I should be that. But now I realise you kind of got to back your own talent and back your own craft and whatever it is, you, you will never be typecast because you're versatile enough to do it. So it was a maturity thing for me and now I wouldn't have a problem. Like, And also too, I'd rather do that than work in a crap job somewhere, you know, making 25, 26, 30 bucks an hour. You know what I mean? You get paid a couple hundred grand for that. Kind of like now, kind of, you know, like bugger it. You know what I mean? Like I, I really am. I'm like bugger it. That's why like I'll, I'll sell out now in some degree. <laughs> I'll sell out. I'll do I'll do that chainsaw, mate. I'll chop someone's arm off. I don't care. You know what I mean? If that's what's going to make me not have to worry about rent or food, I'll do it. So there's a, but then also too, I've learned because I have done some, you know, I've done some films where, you know, I haven't been the best or, you know, there was something quite off of, off about them and, you know, and, or, you know, there's been some bad acting where you've got to push and I've actually enjoyed the challenge of making something that might be average a little bit above average. I don't know if I'm going to get it to exceptional, but I've made it a bit above average and I've liked that kind of leadership uh, feeling as well. I feel like I could be a good leader as an actor, you know, as, you know, not just leading man, but lead the film in a way. So, you know, I kind of now kind of want to back my talent. So whatever comes my way and if I feel like I can do a good job at it, I'm just going to do a good job at it now, you know. So how did the, uh, the film that I saw you in come about? How did you get involved in What If It Works? So, yeah, so same producer, Tristan Moore, was the same producer of Black Balloon. Anyway, uh, uh, he called my agent and said, look, uh, we've got a script that we think Luke would be right to play for. So, so I was this like eight years later? Yeah, no, no, it was probably actually f- maybe five years later because it took four or five years to, to, get, get, up. Ma- to get up. Right. So it was about 2011 or 212, somewhere there. Um, when I got the script and then I met with Romy and, you know, I read it and I was actually, even though she doesn't like talking about it, it was completely different to what it was in the movie. There were different characters and, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I actually, I actually thought it was a, a really good challenge and I thought, yeah, this is the, the, the one that has, you know, when you read something, you kind of want it to scare you, not in a horror movie sense, but, you know, like, holy crap, can I do this? I think that's where the sign of greatness for an actor is. And so I, I read it and I was like, I was terrified with this. And then I met her and said, yeah, let's do it. And then it was like nearly every year, maybe tw- two calls a year going, we're close, we might be getting funding here. Then you wouldn't hear from him for six months to a year. Then another call, hey, we're close, we're going to get something there. Wouldn't hear from him a couple of years. And then finally we got one where it was like, hey, we're really close. And I actually said, yep, we're doing it. And I was like, oh, wow. And that was five years later. And so I went down to Melbs and filmed that role. Obviously, it's uh, something that would have taken a lot of preparation, though, because, uh, I mean, when I heard that, you know, when I first heard about the film, it's like, oh, it's a film about, you know, this, this guy with OCD mm. and I live with OCD. Mm. Um, I was like, well, what are you going to, you know, is it is it going to be another uh, film depiction of mental illness that's almost, almost a parody, mm. um, which um, unfortunately has often been mm. the case, but... Where do you, you know, what what kind of, I guess, preparation did did you do so you could kind of be honourable to to what 
you know, the what character. the story was about. Well, yeah, the other thing you see, for the, all the five years I had with the time, I didn't actually end up having a lot of time. Because, you know, you got used to this thing of like, well, if I started jumping in character, it would have been five years, you know what I mean? I would probably go nuts. I probably would have become completely obsessive compulsive. So when it got this turnaround time, it was like, get it. And then they're like, yeah, we're close. And then it was like about a month where they said, yeah, we're on in a month or something like that or five weeks. So I had about five weeks of kind of, you know, getting myself into it. So, you know, it was like first of trying to get the drawing board off Romy which wasn't as easy as we could. It's the writer-director. Writer-director, sorry, the writer-director because it wasn't easy because her brother had, was the one that, that she was basing on. And I, you kind of wanted to get a glimpse of, of Dean, um, but he, as you know, you know, he's in his rituals. It was very hard to keep an appointment. So that in itself, and then I was, I was looking at other characters that on, whether it be on YouTube, and their, their obsessive compulsive wasn't as in some ways extreme as what Adrian was written as. So it was hard to really get to the reality of like, but these guys don't do this and, you know, and, and, you know, and the energy and the pace of him. So it all kind of got to be like about three weeks of prep, realistically, three weeks of like, okay, staying in it, like a week before rehearsals and then two weeks of rehearsals and then into filming. So I felt like I just kept growing with that character as we went on. Um, if I had an extra month or two, I think I could have even been a lot better. But yeah, it's a sense of discipline, you know, uh, like, right, these are the things and you've got to kind of stick with it. Because the thing about it is the discipline actually changes you. It actually changes you in anything. You know, you go to the gym in the morning, you start going to the gym every morning, that discipline starts changing your body. So I started, you know, setting up kind of like, um, you know, like, okay, rituals, cleaning, keeping things, certain things, watching the road, watching that. And, you know, you start at like you might be having the goal to be 100% in it, but you might only be starting at 25 30% because your brain is still learning to adapt to the discipline. And then it turns into 50%, then it turns into 75%, then it turns into 80 100% is probably a little bit too far-fetched and also probably a bit dangerous because you're going too far over the limit. You need to kind of keep yourself where you can still eventually walk away from this role or step out of it. And so then just staying in that kind of area and also reducing my sleep. I was dramatically reducing my sleep. I wasn't necessarily staying up all night cleaning, but I was also but I was also staying up making sure that in some way it looked like I hadn't had much sleep because I was in my in my rituals. And it really changed me mentally. I wasn't the nicest person in some ways because of that. It really uh, brought a ferociousness in my behavior. I was very moody and uh, poor Romy probably dealt with a bit of that, you know, because I had to be kind of really, uh, 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 you know, positive and upbeat in the sense of the relationship with um, with Anna Sampson's character, Grace and G and all of hers. And and yet, you know, there is something closed behind doors. I mean, I've, you know, you're a, you're a lovely man, Osher, you know what I mean? And I'm sure when, you know, there were parts where you could put on that performance of being the person that you are, but then the darkness of when you shut the doors behind you was definitely yeah. would have been, you know, not the person that you really, you know, wanted yeah. to be. Well, correct? we all have good days and bad days. Yeah, exactly right. What was the, I mean, I guess, you know, you were trying to be really quite authentic as, as you could with trying to, and, and this is what struck me about the film is, you're definitely showing a guy that is at the same time unable to break out of his rituals and yet utterly frustrated mm. yeah. by them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the, and the frustration part carried through off the set. The positive side of Adrian stayed, you know, pretty much in the takes, but 
the 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 frustration stayed outside mm. of that takes. Uh, yeah. you, you look back on it and you feel like you tripped acid in some way or All something, right. you know, because it was so. You know, it's it was such a intriguing. It, it took its mental toll on you. You actually, yeah. you know, reducing that sleep and keeping into the anxiety of obsessive compulsive is, you know, like you know the constant worry or thought or uh, whether it's like a form of hypochondriac as well too that got in there a bit as well. Really started taking its toll, and I was kind of not knowing it at the time that that was actually what was making my behaviour be a bit of a douche you know like you know because i could be really hard and i was also very emotional in some ways not emotional in pain but emotional in anger mm. so and then having to then front up as if i was stepping outside my door and making sure everything's okay you know you close that door and in comes the obsessive you open the door you kind of mm. you don't want people to know it right so it was it was a it was a it was a tough shoot and that plus dealing with the winter as well was was quite tough because that was the coldest winter I'd, I'd experienced even being in New York or yeah, things right. like that. It might not be snowing, but, you know, you come home after a day's work with no socks on because your character thing, you know, it was a low budget. So it's not like you're walking into a trailer with the heat or air conditioning. You're literally in a garage yeah. with no, you know, shaking. And um, it took you until like 2 o'clock in the afternoon to warm up. And then you come home, you turn the news on. It's like today is the coldest day in ten years in Melbourne. You know, today was the coldest day ever in Melbourne. Today was the cold, and you're like, Jesus Christ, what a winter! How long does it take you to decompress after a shit like that? You know what? Normally a fair bit of time to a certain extent, uh, but I was lucky because I had to jump straight onto another film, which really helped the obsessive compulsive break. Because I I had two weeks off and then um, a film, a sci-fi movie called A Serious Child with Kellen Lutz and um, Dan McPherson. D-Mac, yeah. Yeah, yeah. D-Mac. And and I had to play Crazy Bill. And he was like a slobby kind of Texas-y, South, I don't know what he was, but, you know, like real things. So that really knocked the character out of me. So And and it was actually kind of really self, you know, therapeutic, you know, because... I, I got to then break out of those barriers, but it varies, you know, it changes like Black Balloon. I was in character Black Balloon about three months before um, going to the movie. My whole goal was in some way to wake up autistic, you know, and uh, when we wrapped on my last scene, it was the only time ever really in my life, that, oh, and the mummy a little bit, but I just, when they called, that's a wrap on I just cried, and I cried from six o'clock in the morning, nonstop, like wailing, uh, till about 11.30 in the morning because um, we did night shoot and went, it knocked me out to sleep and then I woke up and it was gone. Wow. The whole character was gone and I couldn't do it for a long time and then I think it was about a year or so after The Mummy that someone said, hey, can you do that character? And I did it and I was like, oh, wow, I found it again. And now wow. it's just like a little novelty thing for me. But isn't that, isn't that interesting that even though you are, because um, I've got a, through some stuff that's happened, I've got a. I'm going to a trauma specialist, mm. trauma therapist at the moment, trying to kind of deal with processing some of the physical trauma. And it's mm. interesting how what you do physically um, and what what patterns you put your body through can affect you emotionally. Mm. And that even though you, are, as a conscious man, Luke, know that you are pretending, and this is all pretend, and there's a catering tent, we'll have lunch after this, your body might not know. 
yeah. and that it does need to release. Yeah. And that's yeah. really fascinating. It's true. It, it, tra- trauma's a bitch too. Um, but it's also like it's in some form of it, like in some way, like a start of an addiction in some way. You know, like if you, were, if you were to start doing a drug, at first there's a party element to it or you're enjoying the process mm. of it all. And then, and then you always think I can stop it like that or I can quit like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then eventually when you decide when, whether you decide not to or you go, all right, now I'm not, I'm gonna, not going to do this, it's then, it's then you start feeling the you know, physiological effects and the mental effects and the mm. emotional effects. And, and that's where it creates kind of complete disaster for your mind because you're like, how do, how do I get myself centered here? Yeah. And your nervous system's out of control. And there is a, you know, a fair degree in that depending on what roles you do, you know. And that's, you know, that's why I don't mind the storytelling of it all because it kind of keeps it in a, like a, like a, more like a biography novelty rather than, you know, if I sit down and think about it and really feel it. But if I'm there and I make someone laugh when I tell that story, they're like, wow, that's amazing. I think it just kind of helps take the edge off of it. Yeah, you know? yeah. When you, you say you teach, what do you say to young young guys now who are you know, like possibly talented, fucking good-looking dudes who are walking around with oversized sweaters on? <laughs> I say, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, nah, you know, I say, look, you know, it's a tough game. Uh, uh, and I think the last man standing really wins the game, to be honest. That's what I say to him in some way. It's, you know, it, it takes 20 years to be an actor. That's what I got taught from my teacher. Sandy Meisner, who I didn't actually study with, he died in 91, but, you know, and a lot of the te- great big American-style teachers or even anyone really who's a good teacher will say it takes 20 years to be an actor, 10 years to understand it, 10 years to master it, you know, and after that it kind of goes. And there's actually um, uh, factual-based evidence on that based on like, you know, you, you, I've read articles on Sean Pan, uh, Pacino, De Niro, and they've got to like their 50s or 60s and they're doing an article on some, and they say it's it's acting is so much more easier now. And it's just I don't actually have to stay in character as much and I don't actually have to do this because I don't need to because I'm good and I straight away respond to it really yeah. well, you know. But I don't want to be an actor in 20 years. Look, I want to be on Famous now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, if I, th- those people, when, when someone says to me, uh, I, I want to be famous, so well, do something other than acting because it's not acting. There's a, uh, there's a difference between an entertainer and an actor, in my opinion. You know, deep down, in my opinion, there's a difference. I love everyone and what you want to do in life, but I, if you come and study with me as an actor, I'm gonna make you an actor. You know, that's I'm not. It's not about fame for me. You know, I've had I've walked into many people. I want to be as big as Madonna, <laughs> or I want to be as big as Tom Cruise, and I'm like, I've never seen anyone succeed from that way. You know, even like look at you know the, the biggies right now. In Australia, like Chris Hensworth and all, great-looking guy, da da da. But the the guy, I, I respect that guy. He, he wants to challenge himself, you know. I mean, he's doing Thor and doing all that, but you know, and I, he has to. There's responsibility and contract, but he's there going, no, I want to be a good actor. The fame comes with that, you know what I mean? It doesn't. You don't get it first. You get you gotta you gotta have a foundation of an acting. You won't. I've never seen anyone say, I just want to be famous. I don't want to be an actor. I just want to be famous. I've never seen them really hit those heightened peaks of their life, you know? You've got to enjoy what you do, you know, and it's, it's and it should be just about that enjoyment, not about anything other. Do you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah, I do enjoy it. I, I, I You know, I, the doco with Keen Phoenix is one of my other faves. Uh, what, what I'm not that? here? I'm not here. And he, and he said something really interesting in a quote, which is so true. The... Uh, 
everything is hell except between action and cut. That is heaven. And it's so true. You know, between action and cut, it is, it is bliss. Everything else is, is fucking hell. It's anxious. It's fear-related. It's terrifying in every capacity because you don't know how good you're going to be. But when you just get in there and they call action and you're looking at that other actor and you're working moment to moment, you're trying to pinch each other, uh, there's something very orgasmic about it, which is very addictive. Uh, that's the addiction side of it. Plus the reactions, I got to be honest, the reaction of people when people respond to your work, it's it's kind of addictive as well, but it's dangerous because like that, you know, when I did Black Balloon, I got praised. Then when I did The Mummy, same year, same magazine, same writer, uh, Variety, you know, this kid's talented like Leonardo. Then Mummy, this guy's a bad version of Matt Damon. You know what I mean? That was the two kind of literally, and you're like, wow, you know, so there's a big up and down. That's why you just do it for the love of it. Um and you know, and and it's it's a key. I I remember Meryl Streep, who I you know, you got to say this this lady's too good in some ways. She's phenomenal what she does. Uh, personally, any time she's been nominated for a performance, nearly of all of them, I think she's the one that deserved to win. She doesn't always win them, but that's probably because of politics. But but she was on um, Oprah with um, Nicole Kidman and Julianne Moore on The Hours, the movie The Hours, and I think she was the last one called out. And, you know, Oprah's like, Meryl, Meryl, how do you do it? Meryl, how do you do it? And she goes, with complete pain and anxiety. And they're like, and she's like, really? And all that. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. My agent literally has to put me on the plane to do the job because I'm scared shitless, you know? And Nicole and Julianne were looking going, really? And they were so excited by that. They, It was almost like they had all bonded from that moment because they realized that's exactly like me. I'm terrified at it. And then they showed the agent, you know, and they go, she was, you know, Oprah was shocked. I can't believe this, Mel. You're just so good. And they showed the agent. The agent behaves like, uh huh, yeah, <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like, and so I guess you know, it, it's addictive, but it's also kind of very, you know, it is an addiction. Acting is an addiction. I'm well, that's note that it's a, it's a form of addiction because, <laughs> you know, you enjoy it when you're on it, but when you're off it. Whew, or we're about to do it, it's kind of scary. But I guess it is something that if someone is as incredibly talented as Meryl Streep mm. and as incredibly accomplished and as dedicated as she's been, if even she is scared, yeah. then doesn't that say that fear is a part of any great work? And if you're not feeling afraid, then you might... Well, yeah, it's comfortability is a nightmare for a comfort, you know, comfortability brings complacency in some way. As an artist, I don't know in a general sense, but as an artist, you know, that I, I feel like that's true. And, and you see all those kind of quotes from great actors and they generally have those fine lines where it's scary. It's like challenging, you know, if Meryl, if Meryl was not, if Meryl was comfortable, she's not taking a risk, you know, and, and, you're only as good as the performance you're doing in in some way, and 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 it, and it, it is like walking on thin ice. If you you know if you're light on your toes and you won't go through, you do a great job. You'll get to the other end, but there's a good chance you can fall through, and and that is scary. It is scary, and, and I guess you got to experience bad work sometimes to know that too. You know, um, and that's why I guess as an actor, you know, I. I, you know, as much as, you know, you want the money in some ways and you want a lot of work, but realistically the, the real satisfaction is uh, you want to challenge yourself 
And and any time I've enjoyed my acting craft has always been when I've challenged myself and been put in situations where, you know, whether it was, you know, I haven't got enough time to prepare for the role or, you know, I want to try something unique with this. It gets, you know, it, it brings a certain amount of vulnerability. You know, I had to play Kerry Packer once. And uh, I was in Northern Territory in the middle of nowhere. I was in Ramanjini, the most tribal place in Australia, shooting Charlie's Country. And my agent said, oh, they want to offer you the Kerry Packer role. And I'm like, okay, can I read the script and all that? And they're like, look, if you do this, you literally got to fly back on Friday, go and do a read-through wardrobe, fly back to Darwin, do a couple more days on that, fly back Thursday, you start filming on Friday. I'm like, this guy's the most significant, one of the most significant characters in Australia, you know, like... I honestly was feeling like I was going to make a complete fool of myself because I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. And I still remember driving on that first day and I actually literally was driving my own car going, all right, I need some sort of accident here. I need something to get me out. Not not in self-harming way, but like I needed something to just cover me for another day or two because right. I, I needed more prep time. Yeah. And uh, then you turn up and you just start just – fuck it and do it and take a risk and you start growing with it and I won an award for that and I was shocked and I was like wow you know like (laughs) and then you know so and in that sense you feel kind of really achieved something because you took a risk and it challenged you you know I fucking love Charlie's Country yeah it's a good movie yeah Um, uh, yeah, it's it's a really good movie and I love David he's he's a fascinating character like watching that film it just you just gobsmacked with how beautiful our country is, mm. you know, mm. but also, Jesus, fuck, we've got some work to do. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's so true and it's such an intriguing place because that's a that's no alcohol, no drugs. They literally have sniffer dogs when you land at the airport and uh, and you got, it's the most traditional law area in, in America, in Australia, sorry, yeah, the most right. traditional law. So literally they police tell you, go, right, the center, town centre, that's run by us. You see those signs which says do not en- enter the here without permission from, you know, the, the landowner. That's traditional law. They'll spear you in the leg. We can't do nothing about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> You're like, fair enough. Fair enough. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, it's a beautiful culture and it's the, one of the most misunderstood cultures. You know, uh, you know, I learned so much from there. Like, you know, I've always believed, you know, there was an entitlement to their land and, and all that stuff, but I also was the, not that well educated. And and when I when David owns like a huge amount, like David owns two big parts. He owns uh, there's a north and a south of David's land, so he crosses the river. And David was kicked out for uh, for six years of that land because he was doing bad things like drugs and alcohol, and his elders kicked him out. And that's why he made ten canoes. That's why Rolf made him ten canoes. That got him back into his land to show him about that. But we went on a little like doco. They were shooting a doco on the side for this Charlie's Country. And we went on to the father's land. Yeah, he hadn't been on – no, his mother's land. He hadn't been on his mother's land for a long time. And we went on this canoe and we got off and we landed onto the sand and he got on there and he just fell on his knees and he cried and he was talking and da-da-da. And what people don't understand is that, you know, land rights is literally not to do with actual land rights – Think anybody that wants to know it. Think about your mother or your father who passed away, whoever's in the grave that you love. And just imagine a million people walking on that grave because that's what it's all about to them. It's not to do with, you know, you took my land. It's to do with the fact that you're walking on my elder. 
you're walking on the person I, you know that I love the most. And you know, for me, that was the biggest one of the big discoveries. And also, like the interesting little cultures, like the please and thank yous, not in their culture. And what's so amazing was one day we we're on David's land filming, and the and the four wheel driving was amazing. Like it was just just one of the best experiences I've ever had. But we got a flat tire, and we were behind on our shooting day. And you know, David and the indigenous cultures, they're on their own time. You know, walk, walk you know, walk about time. And next minute we've, you know, and Rolf's like, well, we've got, we've got to get, we've got to get there. We've got to get there. And I'm like, okay. And he says, oh, we've got to, we've got to push David along. We've got to get David to move f- further, further, faster. And I'm like, okay, why can't we just go and go and walk past him and go there? He said, we can't. I said, oh, why can't we? He said, it's their land. They lead. We have to walk behind. They're trackers. So it's their land. It's considered rude to walk in front of them because they know the land better than us. And I was like, wow, that's so fascinating. So we're literally walking on David's hills, going like that. And he's like, you know, you just thought this was a bit of a holiday just because, you know, we got a little, he gets to cruise with his elders and his brother and, wow. and da, da, da. So there was just, there was like, you know, there was so much intriguing about it. But there was also a sadness in the sense that they're losing a lot of their tradition. And I think a lot of that's not on the black. And by the way, black fellow, white fellow is not a racist comment. You know, they like that. You know, it's not like, you know, they don't particularly like being called Aboriginal and they don't particularly like being called Indigenous. They like black fellow, white fellow. You black fella, I'm white fella. That's it. You know what I mean? And uh, I think it really all comes down to really more the white fella because, you know, black fella is starting to follow a lot of white fella culture. But it's only because that's really where everyone's curious, you know. If white fella, you know, when you walk onto their land, you, you, you learn a lot, you know, and you actually develop a bond with the black fella culture. And it actually really uh, is if we, the white fella, got a little bit more interested in the black fella culture, do you know how much that would open the gates for these people to connect to their culture again? It, they would love it. They would love to perform. I mean, David still talked about dancing to the queen. You know, he loved it. He, you know, he, 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 it's one of his most, you know, proudest moments in his lifetime, you know. God bless that man. You know, he's, he's, he's going through a bit of a bad run at the moment. But, you know, he, he was an incredibly great artist and I've never, ever, ever in my life worked with every... I've worked with a lot of great actors, famous, Australian famous, American famous. I've never stood in front of an actor and looked into the guy, looked into this guy's eyes and seen... 50 years of history, you know, from whether it was the lost generation onwards, this man's energy in his eyes, just it, it literally broke me. I After the take or two takes into it, I sat in the makeup chair and I cried. And I'm not like a crier. It was just so strong. He had such depth in his eyes and so much history in his eyes. It was it was actually incredible. And he's a very good actor too. Maybe that's the next thing you write, mate. Yeah, maybe it is, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and get Rolf to direct it. Rolf to here is, you know, Rolf to here is my Clint Eastwood. You know, I, I love that man. He, you know, this is a man that, you know, when riding Charlie's Country would fly from, fly from Tasmania to the Northern Territory because David had his issues and, and he, was, uh, he was doing some time at the thing and, and he was like, come on, David, let's, 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 let's make your life strong again and, and he was literally flying there every week or something like that to write a script for David to get him out and get him back into working as an actor and, and dealing with his issues. And, and it brought David a, a Best Actor Award at Cannes so, and an AFI, AACTA Award too. So, yeah. so you, mentioned, you mentioned you like to be challenged. What's the next challenge for you? Luke? Well, 
the, I'm, I'm, there's a chance of Hollywood again. Uh, I, I feel like that's a challenge now for me. Um, I, I'm, you know, I always want to do my character work and I always want to do that. But there, there is a challenge. Maybe it's still, it's still in the air. But I've been kind of promised it. But there's a um, Shana Best, the director of um, *Or Serious Child*, has kind of landed a big Hollywood film, and with uh, a very famous, hopefully very famous um, actor named Bill Murray, uh, <laughs> oh. which I would be absolutely dreaming to work with. So possibly could be doing that. Ask me that second pillow, please. Possibly could be doing that role. So, hey, wow, that is awesome. I had a dream about it last night. It was bullying me. <laughs> what a dream. What a dream. But, yeah, no, so hopefully if all goes well and the contracts oh, uh, come through. But Shane's a very loyal guy, an incredible director and very loyal man. So I, I think he'll give me the offer. But if not, I don't know, man. I'll just keep plugging along and I, I really like my TV series. You know, it's got some of the stories I told in there with the mummy and stuff like that and and also making it in Hollywood and, you know, just interesting incidences I had with with the police and things like that. One time I was driving with the police. They thought of... Save it for the show. The show, yeah. Save it for the show. Good point. Save it for the show. Yeah, beauty. I hope you make it. Thanks, man. You better Appreciate get writing. It. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Well, um, we've written, a, we've kind of written an outline of every app and uh, now we're into delving into the pilot at the moment. So, see how we go. Yeah, you got to get it done. That'll be awesome. Well, let's hope so. Let's I'm hope so. I'm so grateful you came around today, buddy. Thanks, Osh. Appreciate Thanks it, man. Thanks for your time. I'm going to shoot your photo real quick, all right? Beautiful. Done. Done. All right, beauty. Thanks, man. That was Luke Ford. You can find him on Instagram if you want to see what he's up to. Let him know you heard him here at LukeFord underscore underscore. That's where he is. Thanks again for being here. Thanks in advance for letting a friend know about the show. It makes a big difference to us here at the show. If you tell someone else about the show, then we get one more download. Those things add up. We get to go to publicists and go, look how many people like our show. You can send your superstars to our show when they come to Australia. And then we get better guests on the show and you get a better show to listen to whenever you're doing what you're doing. So um, a big thank you to everybody that helped on this show today. It was produced by Andy Marr. My production coordinator is Hallie Van Spania. Music, of course, by Toe Hider. I shot the artwork and you listened. We all did it together. Yay! Thanks, team. And today was a good one. I feel good about this one. It was a good one. We're in Australia that said yes to love. That's also, that also feels good. And now we start. <laughs> it's pretty sweet, isn't it? Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 